But what would you expect God to say if he came down to earth with just one thing to say? Wouldn't you expect it to be something pretty amazing? Wouldn't you expect his one statement to be something universal, something powerful, something filled with light that encapsulates the truth? Well, as you know, I believe God did come down to earth with something to say. Jesus was God in the flesh, and he had a lot to tell us, more than one thing, of course. But if everything Jesus said about how to live life could be summed up in one statement, it would have to be the statement we have come to this morning. We've been working through the Sermon on the Mount for many weeks, and now we find Jesus ramping up into his conclusion, or perhaps we could even say this is his conclusion, and the rest is epilogue. We've arrived at chapter 7, verse 12 of Matthew, which contains possibly the most famous quotation of Jesus Christ. He says, So in everything, do to others what you would have them do to you. For this sums up the law and the prophets. And what do we typically call this teaching? We call it the golden rule. Now, where in the Bible are we told that this is called the golden rule? Nowhere. As far as historians can tell, this is called the Golden Rule because a Roman emperor, Alexander Severus, from the early 3rd century, had this saying of Jesus engraved in his wall in gold. It is said that this emperor attempted to practice these words of Christ and was therefore a relatively good emperor, significantly raising the moral standards of the Roman government. While Emperor Severus may not have been what we would call a true Christian, we do know that he wanted to erect a temple to the one he called the founder of Christianity, Jesus. He was talked out of it by the pagan priests. But from his part in Roman history, we know that this so, the, the so-called golden rule of Jesus had already spread throughout the empire and was considered to be a very great truth, even as early as 200 A.D. And now, roughly 2,000 years after this was first uttered by Christ, it is no less popular around the world. Almost universally, we've heard these words all of our lives. Perhaps we have heard these words so often that we have not realized how powerful and amazing it would be if they were truly practiced by all. I submit to you in all sincerity that this is simply the best idea ever. This is the most amazing life teaching that has ever been taught. The finest one-sentence summation of how to live that has ever been uttered. If God were to come down to earth and give us one statement of instruction about life, I don't believe what he would say could be any more profound or potentially effective than this. But the well-read skeptic asks, was this teaching original to Jesus? Well, ultimately, yes, I believe so. Earlier philosophers had made this point in the negative, but never in the positive. For instance, five centuries earlier, Confucius essentially said, don't do to others what you don't want them to do to you. That may sound very similar, but it is actually quite small, comparatively. Confucius only gives us a way not to live. It's more about doing nothing than doing something mostly by staying out of the way, not changing the world. 
The profound difference in these words first uttered by Christ is in the fact that they are proactive. We're to proactively think of ways to do things that are a blessing, to give our lives in service to other people, to do, not just to do not. Jesus offers a plan of action for life rather than just another boundary line not to cross. And as such, he gives us a way to change the world for the better. This is the greatest idea ever. Besides all of that, if one wanted to attribute this idea to someone who spoke before Jesus, one would find nothing more similar or earlier spoken than that which came by the inspiration of God through his prophet Moses. The Pentateuch written down by Moses is some of the oldest human writing we have particularly of a nature that would speak authoritative truth for people to obey. Around 1,500 years before the time of Christ, it was Moses who wrote down these inspired words of God, Love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. Later, Jesus directly quoted this verse as well and referred to it as the second greatest commandment, second only to the commandment to love God with all our heart soul, mind, and strength. There's obviously a strong similarity between the ideas of loving our neighbors as ourselves and doing to others as we would have them do to us. Both are proactive. Both are roadmaps for life. Both are really all about love. Still, the way Jesus put it in his Sermon on the Mount was new in a couple of ways, not the least of which in the fact that he simply used the word others rather than neighbors. I think he did this just in case someone was finding a loophole in the word neighbors. And in fact, Jewish teachers had done just that. These words of Jesus were so profound and so memorable that I would venture to say every person here today knows this teaching of Christ by heart. Do to others what you would have them do to you. This must be the most memorized verse of Scripture in the entire Bible. Even many moderate Muslims use this as their own code of ethics, though they may not know where it came from. The case can easily be made that this is the single most quoted lesson that has ever been taught in the history of the world. And isn't that what you would expect if God came down to earth with something to say? Wouldn't you expect that God would have said at least one thing that would be utterly universal, eternally enduring, pricelessly, profound. Yes, you would. And yes, he did. Of course, all of God's word has endured, but this little summation of Jesus has made more of an impact globally than possibly anything else God ever said. In these words, it is almost as if God found a way to boil things down into something simple enough for self-centered silly heads like most of us to understand. And it would seem that he had I had to come all the way down here. Don't make me come down there. <laughs> Just to say it. Three-year-olds can understand this. There's so many things to comprehend about life and about God and so many things in the Bible that are difficult to understand. There are so many mysteries, but this, our text today, is not mysterious in the least. And you know, if we spent more time living out the parts of the Bible that we do understand, maybe we wouldn't have so much time to worry about the rest. We might do better applying this simple truth from Jesus than arguing about nuances of theology, obscured by the mystery of God, for example. 
I would even say when it comes to following Jesus in our days on earth, we could largely succeed if this short statement were the only words of God that we could really understand. In everything, do to others as you would have them do to you. It's how to live in 14 words. This one sentence could be published as the entire text of a book called How to Live Life for Dummies. The difficulty in this teaching comes not in understanding, but in doing it. We blame God for so much. But how much that is wrong in the world would be righted if everyone lived by this simple teaching? I realize I'm being idealistic, but for the sake of argument, imagine that the world would, what the world would be like if everyone simply obeyed these words of Christ. Can you imagine? I mean, seriously, can you imagine? Granted, living like this wouldn't solve everything because not every problem is caused by people, but just think about what it would solve. There would be no hunger. There would be no loneliness. There would always be someone to comfort you in your pain. There would always be someone to help. There would be no lies. There would always be someone uh, there. There would be no cheating. There would be no abuse. There would be no rape, no murder, no theft, no legal system or government or law enforcement needed. There would be no need of war even to protect the innocent. There would be no preventable diseases. Most importantly, if everyone followed just these few words of Christ, there'd be no one who has not at least heard the good news about a relationship with God which is available through faith in Jesus Christ. There'd be no one who's not prayed for or cared for or loved. There would be no neglect. There would be no person who might die without anyone noticing. God found a way to tell us the truth about how to live in a heavenly way that toddlers can understand. Yet we have not applied that truth, and the result is hell on earth. Many even question whether or not God has revealed truth to us at all, even though Jesus came down to utter such powerful words. Some question the existence of God and therefore of truth. Because of this, some live by survival of the fittest, as much as they can get by with it and not wind up in jail. Worse, those of us who believe this golden rule is truth from God still only apply it selectively. What would the world be like if everyone always applied these 14 words of Jesus Christ? And who then is to blame for the mess we've made of this place? The answer was in the question, wasn't it? Two men are walking along discussing God, eternity, and the final judgment. One of them stops and says, you know, there's a question I'd like to ask God. What question? His friend resp responds. Well, how could you let all the evil and despair and injustice occur in the world? The other guy stops and with a serious expression says, that question terrifies me. Terrifies you? How could asking such a fundamental question terrify you? Well, I'm afraid God might turn around and ask me the same question. <laughs> We all know the golden rule, but how well do we apply it? That's the question. And of course, as in all aspects of our spiritual journey, our efforts here must flow out of a close relationship with God because, as most of us know from other scripture, we can do nothing, no good thing, 
out of our evil, sinful nature. Only knowing and walking with God results in spiritual fruit. To attempt to live out this principle in our own strength leads only to a feeling of futility and frustration because you'll never overcome your own selfishness on your own. Time with God in prayer and Bible study, submitting to His power and work in your heart, remembering and practicing His presence throughout your day, that is, abiding in Christ is the surest way I know to become a person who lives out this most profound of his teachings day in and day out. See, this is God's rule, not man's. And it is only by God's power that we have a chance to possibly practice his rule. Sure, these words are simple to understand, but living them out requires the power of God in your life. When Jesus told us about the greatest and second greatest commandment, what he was essentially saying is that only as you love the Lord your God with everything you are will you find the power to love your neighbor as yourself. A loving relationship with God through Christ is the very thing that leads to truly loving people. Having said that, we're going to get practical and talk about a few of the ways, just four of the ways, many ways that followers of Jesus can apply this most famous of his sayings. Again, Jesus said, so in everything, do to others what you would have them or want them to do to you. For this sums up the law and the prophets. Let's break this down a little bit. First of all, Jesus said, so in everything. Don't miss the first word, so. Other translations use the word therefore. Obviously, this is a word that connects to the previous verse or verses, forming what amounts to an if then statement. It's like saying, if you eat, then you won't be hungry. Just as it doesn't make sense to isolate the you won't be hungry part of that statement, neither does it make sense if we don't see what the golden rule is flowing from in Scripture. So what is the so or the therefore referring to at the beginning of our text today? Let's think about that because I believe this points back to much more than simply the previous verse. There's a mathematical principle that can be found in just about every discipline that involves creativity. Architecture, art, musical composition, literary composition, and many other disciplines. This principle is called the golden section, or the golden mean, or sometimes the golden number. These terms refer to a certain ratio or proportion that seems to have amazing properties, and using that ratio just seems to work the best. In architecture, this ratio is structurally sound and aesthetically pleasing. In art, these proportions are satisfying to the eye. In literature, climaxing the narrative at the golden section makes for a great story. In musical form, it just seems to work best to have the most golden part of the composition come at this particular point in the song. Let me describe this principle first as a mathematical axiom. The golden mean, or the golden section or number, is this linear point where, assuming A is longer than B, some of you are just like, oh, what is this? <laughs> Nightmares of algebra. Assuming A is longer and B is shorter, and C is A, C is A and B combined, A is much longer than B as C is longer than A. What this means is that A is to B as C is to A. The golden section is represented by the Greek letter phi and can be expressed by the constant number of 1.61803398871. 
<laughs> that was kind of fun to say. Probably meant nothing to absolutely any of you. So let me use an example from architecture. This ratio was used in architecture as early as the pyramids. But let's take a look at the Notre Dame Cathedral. Hopefully it is on the screen. Yes, excellent. Technology working, it's wonderful. In architecture, the golden mean is said to be the most pleasing to the eye. It's also structurally sound. If you look at the lines, you can see that whole A, B, C thing and the white lines and the blue lines. Hopefully you're kind of getting that because I can't spend a lot of time explaining it. How the golden mean was used to set the proportions of the building, both vertically and horizontally. This is just one of many examples we could look at. Many of the greatest structures throughout history employed the golden mean as a ratio for aesthetics and strength. I also remember learning about this in my study of classical music. In music, the golden section is not an ex as exact as in architecture, but it's that point in the symphony or other musical work where the masters would bring the composition to a pinnacle or a climax. This would likely be your favorite moment in the song. Most of the greatest musical compositions did not end on the highest or loudest or most dramatic note. Instead, the high point came at the golden section, which is usually little more than two-thirds of the way through the piece. It was discovered by music historians that for whatever reason, the most appealing and enduring works were those which placed the climax in this particular golden spot. This principle is still applied by songwriters today, though if you are probably aware of the historical nature of the principle, most of the songs you enjoy listening to on the radio hit their peak within something referred to as the bridge. This climactic bridge, usually between the final verse and the final chorus, is often at the point in the song where A is to B as C is to A, somewhere just over two-thirds of the way through the song. This is called the golden section. Many literary compositions follow a similar principle. Take The Hobbit by J.R.R. Tolkien, for example. The climactic fight with the dragon comes well before the end of the book. The ending simply winds down the story. Much of the best literature shares this characteristic. Now, some of you are intrigued, but others are wondering, what in the world is my point in all of this? Well, guess where Jesus placed the golden rule within the Sermon on the Mount? He does not share it in the beginning, nor does he share it at the very end. The golden rule does not come in the middle of the Sermon on the Mount. A simple word count places the golden rule somewhere around 80% of the way through the message. What I'm saying is that the golden rule may be thought of as the golden section of this most famous sermon of Jesus. This is the climax, the high point, and I think the most important moment of his entire message. Partly because of that understanding, I believe the so, or the therefore, refers not just to the immediately preceding verse, but at least in some sense, to everything Jesus had said to that point in his sermon. Every single truth or principle that we have been talking about in this entire series leads up to the point of the golden rule. Think about it. All this teaching about life and living that we've absorbed from the lips of our Lord and Savior, much of it intended to demonstrate the human, humanly impossible challenge of obeying the law of God can be summed up and simplified with the words, so in everything. Oh, just everything? Yes, everything. Do to others what you would have them do to you. 
This is the golden section of the Sermon on the Mount. In fact, I do not believe I go too far in opining that this is the golden section of the entire Bible. After all, this does come somewhere between halfway and the end. But more importantly, Jesus himself tells us plainly that this one statement sums up the law and the prophets. Did you notice that? What is Jesus referring to when he says this sums up the law and the prophets? Am I going too far when I say this is the most important moment in the sermon? What did Jesus say about his own words here? He says, oh, by the way, I just summed up the entire Bible. The Old Testament, the entire Bible up to that point in history, Genesis through Malachi. The first five books, also called the Pentateuch, written down by Moses, are the law. And the rest of the books were often referred to as the prophets. Jesus says, let me just sum the whole Bible up with one sentence for you. Wait, what? Who would even try to do such a thing? You realize how radical this sounded to their ears, to his audience? These Jews practically worshiped the law and the prophets. Their entire lives were ordered around studying, memorizing, and attempting to obey the law and the prophets. The religious leaders had written lengthy tomes, commentaries of a sort, trying to explain and apply the truths and commandments written in the law and the prophets, every jot and tittle, and in these, they addressed the smallest minutia with verbosity. They created thousands of additional rules and laws that they had spun off of the text, all of which they deemed as absolutely necessary if a person were to be found obedient to the original text. They spent their lives learning and applying these words. And here Jesus comes along and says, listen, folks, you can pretty much sum it all up, just this one rule. Do to others what you would have had, what you would have them do to you. That's it. Wow. Who did this Jesus think he was? Summing up the Bible like that. How presumptuous could this man be? Unless, of course, he was the one who wrote the book in the first place. Or unless he himself was actually the Word of God made flesh. Then I guess he would have the authority to put the whole Bible in a tiny little nutshell by the way let me circle back to something I've already said just for a moment one of the biggest things Jesus was doing in the Sermon on the Mount I spent a lot of time on this early in the series one of the biggest things he was doing in the Sermon on the Mount was showing us that we cannot obey the law and the prophets his overarching purpose was in showing them and us that they and we desperately need a Savior if you've been here for the series, you've heard me say that many times. You've also heard me say that on this side of the cross, because we have a Savior, and as long as we have actually been saved by Him, we can now obey the Spirit of the law of God in His strength and by His power. So the golden rule becomes the ultimate smackdown of secular humanism, even as it is the ultimate challenge of Christianity. Did you hear that? The golden rule is the ultimate smackdown of humanism. Because if there was ever anything that is impossible for humans, it is the golden rule. 
But at the same time, this also becomes the ultimate challenge for true Christians because in Christ we can do this. And we can learn to do it as we grow in Christ more and more. Now let's get practical. Let's look at how followers of Jesus, saved by grace through faith, can actually learn to apply the heart of this teaching. After saying so in everything, or therefore in everything, Jesus says, do to others what you would have them do to you. Notice first, that to understand what we should do to others, we need to be in touch with what we would want to be done to us. Believe it or not, this takes a little bit of intentionality. You'll have to think about it as you're assessing a situation and what should be done. Okay, wait a minute. Is this the way I would want to be treated? Really? With that in mind, let's think about a few specific instances of life in which our treatment of other people is even more important than usual. And let's see how this would apply. For instance, how should we treat others when they are hurting? How do you want to be treated when you're hurting? Do you want to be ignored? Do you want to be avoided? Do you want to be lectured? How do you want to be treated? Isn't that the question Jesus said we should ask for first? It's not even how should they be treated. But how would you really want to be treated? Not how should. How would I want to be? And see, that's the measure of how we're to treat others. So how do you want to be treated when you are hurting? Most of us want sympathy, right? And, and we truly need Sympathy, we do. It's not a bad thing to want or need sympathy. If pride keeps you from allowing yourself to receive sympathy, it is your pride that is wrong, and eventually your unmet need for sympathy will blow up in everyone's face. Anybody can act tough, but the truth is that when you are hurting, you need sympathy like a baby needs milk. Sometimes you just need someone to care enough to try to make you feel better even if there really is nothing the other person could do. Their effort meets a need, doesn't it? Why does it make us feel better when a real person does their best to console us in our pain? Why does a baby stop crying when her mother picks her up and holds her? Well, because God made us to be consoled by other people. God gave us the ability to comfort one another. Isn't that an amazing thing? This really is such a powerful thing when you think about it, that you and I have the capability to comfort one another. The Bible says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our affliction, so that we will be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. When you are hurting, you may not even realize it. You may let pride get in the way. But what you really want is for somebody to care. And for somebody, at least figuratively, to pick you up and hold you for a moment or two. You need someone to comfort you as best they can with the comfort they have previously received from God because that's the best kind of comfort there is. So understand that's really what you need and what you would want when you are hurting. Make sure you offer the same to others when they are hurting. 
By the way, there's going to be a sub-theme. I'm barely going to mention it in all of this today. It's, it's sort of this. Practicing in the church. Practicing these truths in the church so that we can also then overflow, let these things overflow into the world. And that whole concept of bringing heaven to earth, being the salt and light of the earth. That's just going to run underneath everything today. Because these are going to be things that we can do really well in the church. We should be. We could. And it can overflow into the world and become what draws people. By our love, they will know. That's just going to run underneath. Do to others what you would have them do to you. What about when they hurt you? Okay, so to know how to treat people when they hurt you, according to Jesus, you should ask yourself how you would want to be treated when you've hurt another person. Do you want that person to keep it to themselves and then hold a grudge or gossip to others about it? Wouldn't you rather that person humbly share it with you um, how you've hurt them and give you an opportunity to explain or apologize? Isn't that really what you would want? I guarantee that's what I want. If I hurt your feelings, particularly if you can't let it go, I, I would want you to tell me about it in person. At least give me a chance to further explain or to make it right if I can. The last thing I would want is for you to bury it and, and, and nurse it and think less of me because of it. Additionally, I would want you to talk to me in a conversation, not email, or um, not taking a shot on social media, passive-aggressive stuff. You know, how many of you feel the same way, that you'd rather someone tell you in person if you hurt them? Okay, then, why don't we do to others as we would have them do to us? Why do we not give others a chance to explain or apologize or both? Why do we make some blanket statement on social media hoping that person might read it or hear about it? Is that what you would want them to do to you? No, so don't do it to them. Now, there's a right way to do this. Of course, I mentioned that you should do it in person, but even in person, there are wrong ways to do this. If you would, um, if you would like to see a big, fat conflict, go in as an accuser. The, the Bible says the devil is the accuser of the brethren. Don't be like him. But if you want reconciliation, you give someone every benefit of the doubt. Maybe I misunderstood something here. And you approach them humbly and carefully, but you do approach them. Once again, do it in the way you would want it to be done to you. And going to them isn't the hard part. That's just the, that's just the little, the hardest part, right, is to forgive. Because you would want to be forgiven. Jesus said so very much about forgiving each other. For instance, be on your guard. If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times a day, and returns to you seven times saying, I repent, forgive him. By the way, there are other verses that tell us to forgive whether they repent or not. In another place, Jesus says we can't uh, forgive, and says, says that, he says, forgive and you will be forgiven. But if you do not forgive, you will not be forgiven. Doing to others as we would have them do to us must mean forgiving them, right? We always want others to forgive us, so we must always forgive others. 
This, this, this golden rule covers the whole forgiveness thing, too. On that note, let me say that if you can forgive without confronting the person, you should. Isn't that what you would want? You wouldn't want every single person to come to you with every little thing that you ever said or did that rubbed them the wrong way. You would only want them to come to you if they really were not able to let it go, right? So that's what you should do for them also. Here's a third practical way to apply these words. Do to others what you would have them do to you when they need help. Have you ever really needed help? Have you ever been desperate for help? Back in Missouri, I did a lot of creek fishing. That doesn't mean I fished for creeks. It means I fished for fish in creeks. And I would uh, wade up and down these tiny little creeks fishing for smallmouth bass. It was awesome. One time I was wading in deeper water fishing with topwater lures. That meant the lure was pretty close to face level. I remember attempting to set the hook on a fish and missing it. The lure, with all of its sharpened treble hooks, wound up flying into my face. I noticed that it did not fall back down into the water. No, that little jitterbug had found a home in my skin. The hook went all the way to my cheek right below my eye, and it stuck there like Velcro. That's when it began, it began to hurt. A lot. I couldn't really even see the thing, but I could hear it rattling around when I would move my head. Hooks have barbs, which are designed to keep them from coming out of a fish's mouth, or in this case, my face. There was nothing I could do. I'd gotten hooks out of other parts of my body before, but never my face, where I couldn't see it. Thankfully, I wasn't fishing alone that day. And my good friend came over to help me out. He took out his pliers, and he clipped off the lure, leaving just the hook. That, has, that didn't hurt at all. Um, and then he, he did the hook, or the only thing that you can do, which is to push the hook on through the way that it, that it went in. On out the other side of the new hole that was being made in the process. In the end, my rookie surgeon friend got it done. And we went on fishing. The next day I went in for a tetanus shot and all was well. I was out in the wilderness and I needed help. Thankfully, I had a friend with me who did for me what I would have much rather have done for him. <laughs> After all, the most important thing to both of us was that we did not have to stop fishing that day. When you see someone who needs help, remember the golden rule. Jesus was teaching people how to follow him, remember? Remember I told you how this correlates to the love your neighbor as yourself. What, how did he describe your neighbor when they tried to find a loophole? It was the Good Samaritan story, right? Most of you know that. Helping somebody. A big part of what he had in mind. He was showing his disciples how to be his disciples. As his disciples, we ought to be excited when we find out about an opportunity to help somebody. Why? Because it's an opportunity to be the greatest thing we can be on this earth, a disciple of Jesus. There's nothing better than getting to be the one to help. What a privilege. Now, is there a point where someone can abuse this? Sure. And when that happens, what that person really needs and whether they realize they're not what they want, 
is to not be enabled in their helplessness anymore. Some people get to the point where they are addicted to the help of others, and at that point, doing to them what you would want done to you actually means not helping. That's because some people are desperate to be required to help themselves. But don't use that as an excuse when it really doesn't apply. And see, knowing what to do and how to do, it's all right there in what Jesus said in the 14 words. It's all right there. As long as you really apply what he said, you'll do the right thing. What would you really want done to you? What would really and truly be helpful? Whatever the true answer is to that question, do it. If we all helped each other the way we'd want to be helped, I do think there would be a lot more real, generous helping going on. And that would be a really good thing in the church and the church in the world. Let's talk about one last situation. Jesus would tell us to do to others what you would have them do to you when they are seeking answers. When they're seeking answers. And I especially mean this as it pertains to friends and family who have not yet come to a saving faith in Jesus Christ. Maybe somehow they know they need God, but they aren't sure how to find Him. Let's say that you are a true follower of Christ. That means that at some point you made a faith decision to receive Jesus as your Savior and you were granted God's forgiveness and even eternal life by faith in the power of what He did on the cross in the resurrection. So now, as it pertains to doing to others, as you would want them to do to you, wouldn't you want a friend or family member to tell you about the salvation that is available in Jesus? Yes, of course, because now you know what you were missing. But let's also talk about the how. Remember how you felt before you put your trust in Jesus Christ, especially if it happened for you as an adult or young adult. Perhaps you knew someone who was one of those um, hyperactive, abrasive Christians, and perhaps that person was just a little too in your face about it. How did you want to be treated by other people who believed in Jesus? Before you believed, how did you want to be treated by Christians who were trying to tell you about salvation and what we call the gospel? Maybe you're thinking this could lead to not sharing your faith at all. I didn't want to hear anything. But think a little deeper. There were at least times whether or not when you actually were searching for something. Did you not really have some part of you that wanted to understand? Isn't the thing you didn't want really all about methodology? Couldn't you have handled a conversation about this if it had been done in the right way? See, Jesus would tell you to treat your unsure or unsaved friends the way you wanted to be treated when you were in their shoes. What does that mean? That means you care too much not to share, but you also care too much to share in the wrong way. How did you want to hear about Jesus? Because, just let me just pause for a second here, if you don't think that I'm, this is needed. Because there's a lot of people out there saying, just, just be in their face, the response is up to them. Just get all up in their face. Just hell and just all that right on the front end, you know, wrath of God, right on the front, just hammer the crap out of them, oops. I don't know if I've ever used that word from the pulpit before, but. Uh, you know, words kind of move in and out of okay or not okay. Hopefully that one's gotten to be okay for most of you. I'm sorry to those it's not. You're just going to hammer them. You know, that's what they're saying, some people out there. Well, that doesn't quite fit the golden rule, if you ask me. 
How did you want to hear about Jesus? Perhaps you wanted to see it lived out before you heard it preached. Perhaps you wouldn't have minded hearing from a person who had um, already poured love into your life in other ways, or from a person who had earned your respect. Perhaps you wanted to be able to ask questions, not just be told. Perhaps you wanted your thoughts and opinions to be considered as well. Beyond that, I'm betting you wanted someone who could give some kind of reasoning or rationale or evidence, even if it was mostly circumstantial. You wanted someone who didn't just expect you to believe something with no reason to believe it. Like if I told you all that you just need to believe in unicorns. I'm betting you didn't want to hear empty platitudes like, just believe in Jesus and everything will be, will be great. I'm betting you wanted the gospel to actually be explained. To have someone demonstrate some kind of thought process behind why a person would choose faith in Jesus. I'm only touching on this, really. But the point is this. Share Christ with others in the way you would have wanted someone to share Christ with you. I'm telling you that if you really think about it, the golden rule can revolutionize your own efforts to reach out and make disciples. And by the way, we think about that as a church and things that we do. So those are just four random life situations in which you and I can and should apply the golden rule. When others are hurting, when others hurt you, when others need help, and when others are seeking answers about God. In his book, Mere Christianity, C.S. Lewis wrote this, do not waste your time bothering whether you love your neighbor, act as if you did. As soon as we do this, we find one of the great secrets. When you are behaving as if you loved someone, you will presently come to love him. If you injure someone you dislike, you'll find yourself disliking him more. If you do him a good turn, you will find yourself disliking him less. By the way, that can apply to marriage. I don't know. I feel like somebody needs to hear that. The point is that the mandate of Jesus in the golden rule is a plan of action for the life of those who would follow him in his love for all the people in the world. Let me say that again. The mandate of Jesus in the golden rule is a plan of action for the life of those who would follow him in his love for all the people in the world. Not a platitude to ponder, but an axiom to be lived out. I believe these words of Christ really do convey the best idea ever. But it is only when we do the golden rule that we find out how powerful it is. We often teach the golden rule to our kids. But when is the last time you were intentional about applying it in your own life? If we had to boil down what it means to follow Jesus, to be his disciples, to have learned from him and to live for him, we might just come down to making the choice daily to treat others as we would like to be treated. I wonder if anyone today would commit to making a stronger effort to apply this in real life. I hope so. But just to make sure you don't think I'm teaching some kind of human moralism here today, let me ask one last time, where does the gospel come into all this? The gospel means that although apart from Christ we are hopelessly lost and selfish, through the life-changing power of the grace of God, which comes to us through faith in Christ, we can find the strength and the will to actually follow Jesus part of which means to obey his teachings. 
We all have to start by receiving the grace of God through faith in what Jesus did on the cross. That's the only thing that's really going to change the life of any sinful human. But once that has happened, you'll still need to apply yourself to what God wants to do in making you more and more like Christ. The gospel's a power to change, to be the person God wants you to be. And Jesus is painting a picture of that. The gospel is, is, is not only hope for you, it's hope for the world. It's hope for a better world and ultimately hope that the kingdom of God would come, that heaven, at least to some degree, could even be had here on earth as we prepare the way for the return of Jesus, at which point he himself will completely restore and remake this place by his power. But how sad is it when Christ's representative can't even get his golden rule right? Or when we don't get it right most of the time? Or when so many of us are not getting it right that people in the world would have a hard time believing such a teaching is at the center of what it means to live as a Christian? How sad would that be? And I'm not talking about the world's definition of goodness right now. I'm talking about whether we are actually doing what Jesus actually said we must do. You can't change others. I can't change others, but the gospel of Jesus Christ can change you today so that you can be a part of the solution. The solution to the hatred and the violence the division, the suffering, the selfishness that's running rampant in our world. Will you turn to Jesus and join the team that's setting out to advance the heavenly kingdom of God on this earth? Will you surrender to him for the first time, if you never have, to be saved? Or if you've already been saved but you know you stray, will you surrender to him the hundredth time or we just stay the same, stay selfish, and follow a path that will only become more self-centered as the end draws near. The choice is yours, the power is in Christ. Would you pray with me? Father, I'm convicted this morning of my own selfishness. I pray that you'll help me to apply the words of this sermon that I would be more intentional. That I would just let this knife edge of truth, this, this sword that pierces even to my own soul, this heart of the teaching of Jesus, this, this climactic point in the Sermon on the Mount, if I forget so many things and I'm always forgetting, Lord, help me remember this that even as I'm saved and even as the Holy Spirit lives in me, if I don't meet this measurement, I'm really not following Jesus in this world. Change my heart. Grow me up. As we think about maturity and what it means in the church, and sometimes we think it means more knowledge or more understanding or all these other things, maybe it means this. Maybe it means this more than anything else if we really look at Jesus and who he was and what he taught. God, for others in this room 
Lord, the whole Sermon on the Mount, the whole thing is designed to say you cannot please God. You cannot follow his law. You cannot be good enough to make it into his kingdom. You need a savior. Jesus is saying all of this rule keeping, all of this law stuff, it only was designed to show you how desperate you are for me. And here I am. And here you are today. Through the power of your word and your Holy Spirit being presented, here you are. You're here for someone to receive. I pray that today might be the day someone says yes. I can't do it on my own. It's going to be hard enough with your help because of my old evil nature. But I'm going to surrender to you. Take control. Help me become the person that brings your kingdom to this earth by how I live. And the person who by faith in your cross and what you did and your resurrection gets to look forward to an eternity where I will have been perfected and made, made glorious, made like you. I want to be on that path, so I accept Jesus today. Just turn to Jesus from myself. Just turn away from my unbelief. I turn to my belief. Repent of all of that, and I put my trust and my faith in Jesus. Just save me. I surrender today. And if that's you, I hope you'll let us know because it's the biggest decision you've ever made. God, help us help the church in this world today to be so utterly different and so exactly as you would have us to be that it draws people, that by our love they would know, that we would represent you well and not poorly. Change us, revive us, use us. In the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen. Thanks for listening to Go Church's weekly sermon podcast. If you enjoyed the sermon, be sure to rate and review us. If you want to learn more about the ministry of Go Church or catch up on previous sermons, check out our website, www.gochurchpnw.com. You can also connect with Go Church on Facebook and Instagram.